Let's open them up to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to start with verse 9, and I'll go ahead and read through the verses today. Um, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of each sort, of every sort, into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall be come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're in Genesis... Um, And last week, we kind of saw what a world without God really looks like. We saw a world in which morality itself was extinguished. A world where righteousness had no place. A world where sin abounded left and right. A world in which people simply did not want God, nor did they acknowledge God or care about God. Now the question is, What is God going to do about this? Is God going to simply allow evil to continue forward? Is God going to allow the world to continue to simply decay into vileness and darkness without any light? Well, the answer to that is found in this chapter too. So, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. To begin the Noah narrative, we find the typical statement, these are the generations of. This phrase has been seen throughout Genesis, starting with Genesis 2, when we are told, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We can see then, again, with Cain and with Adam, and now we find it with Noah. This is what, as we have seen previously, is called a taladot, or taladot, depending on who you ask. And as such, it begins a new section within Genesis. Um, But there's a difference with Noah. As immediately we are told that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The concept of being righteous means that he was good. Or later on in scriptures, it would describe one who kept the law. Thus, we immediately find he is a man who lived in congruence with God's commandments. This is still further amplified when we find that he is blameless. 
The term blameless is not used as often as righteous in the Bible. And while all were called to be righteous, few are considered blameless in the scriptures. As such, it further shows Noah's character. He was a good man who sought to honor God in what he did. It is from this we find the last moment that he walked with God. There is only one other person in the scriptures who is known to have walked with God, and that is Enoch. Others are described as walking before God, but only Noah and Enoch are considered to be walking with God. It may show their relationship with God prior to the flood, as of a different quality than those after the flood, um, but that's speculation. Finally, we learn of Noah's progeny, in that he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These sons are not the focus of the story, as they are not described as Noah is described. Still, the fact that they are spared from the coming torrent may indicate that they were considered righteous in the same way or the same vein as Noah himself, though perhaps not of similar caliber, or not the same caliber, we should say. Alrighty, now verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Once we've learned about Noah, we then learn about the earth. And as a side note, this is again different than any other Taladot, because usually it'll describe uh, the generations, as we saw with Adam and with Cain. But now it's just a full story entails. So as it is, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. To be corrupt implies that it was ruined or spoiled. The sinfulness of humanity did not only have repercussions for humanity, but for all the world. One could understand it as recognizing that very uses of humanity on the earth caused it to become corrupted itself. This is further established with the concept of violence. To be violent represents what Wenham calls antisocial or unneighborly activity. It has a sense of infringement against others, motivated by greed or hate, and further brought about by violence. Thus we see that the earth is filled of individuals who take advantage of others. Perhaps individuals are similar to Lamech in Cain's genealogy. God saw uh, reflects what we find in Genesis 1 and 2, where God saw the earth and all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, however, what God sees is corruption. It is no longer good, but evil. Some scholars debate whether or not all flesh implies only humans or literally all flesh, including animals. Ultimately, there is no consensus, so it seems more likely that all flesh implies all humans and animals, leading to the conclusion that the corruption was vast on the earth. Now, verses, or verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 13 marks a change in the setting. Previously, we learned of the state of the world via the corruption which has taken place. Now God gives a speech outlining what is going to occur. Along with his own work, it will also deal with what Noah is called to do and expected to do in obedience. So it begins, God is going to make an end of all flesh. Because of the great corruption which has occurred on the earth, God has decided to judge that which is bringing the judgment which is the flesh. As such, the judgment which comes will be a way for causing the earth itself to be judged because of the violence found within, as well as judgment against the flesh which causes that violence to begin with. 
Now verses 14 through 16. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how we are going to make it. How you are going to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it with a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verses 14 through 16 now show the details of how Noah is going to escape the judgment. By God's grace, Noah is given the plans for the ark. The term ark is used only once more in the scriptures, or in the Old Testament at least, as the word describing the basket which baby Moses was placed in. Ultimately, and in comparison with other flood stories, the description of the ark is rather brief. It is to be made of gopher wood. This is an unknown wood, hence some translations understanding it as cedar, squared or smooth timber, or even some sort of conifer-type tree. The ESV translates rooms what can be considered reeds. Uh, thus, there is a debate over whether the description means sections within the ark or further building materials for the ark. Hence, it is between gopher wood and pitch. The pitch is used as a sealant for the ark. The next discussion deals with its length. The length of a cubit was approximately 18 inches long. And because of this, we can estimate that the ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet broad, and 45 feet deep. Thus, it looks like a large box. <laughs> Verse 16 ends the discussion of the ark by having a roof. This statement about the roof is somewhat debated. Does it mean that the roof is to be a cubit above the rest of the ark, or does it mean that the cubit's roof is to be overhanging the side of the ark by about 18 cubits? Ultimately, debate continues as there seems to be little consensus on the matter, and it doesn't really change the effect of the story. With this, there is the mention of the door which is necessary for entering and exiting the ark and will play an important part in the story later on, as well as the discussion of the decks. Thus, the ark would have multiple decks to it, um, allowing for at least some partitions to be made. Along with some, uh, some of this, some commentators note parallels to the building of the tabernacle. The building of the tabernacle is the only other place in the law where such detail is given concerning a building construction. Because of this, some commentators see the ark uh, and the tabernacle as parallels. In particular, Westerman says, The place where God allows his glory to appear is the place whence the life of the people is preserved. The ark corresponds to this in the primeval event where the concern is for the preservation of humanity. Such is the significance of the construction of the ark, because by means of it, God preserved humanity from destruction. Now, verses 17 through 21. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall... Come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Throughout this chapter, we have seen the reason for the coming destruction as well as the warning of a destruction to come. 
Now, however, we learn of the way in which God will judge the world. It begins with the reflection that God will be the one who brings the flood about. In ancient times, the gods brought about a flood, but they could not control it, and ultimately they feared the flood. Here we find God in sovereign control of the flood, which is described. This flood will ruin all flesh, where there is the breath of life under heaven. The concept of it being under heaven, some scholars note, may represent land creatures rather than aquatic animals. This makes sense since such a discussion has been focused on the earth rather than the waters. Verse 18 then begins the discussion about the purposes of the ark. There have been some who have tried to argue that at this point Noah is given a command, but if we read carefully, we see that this is not the case. Instead, this is simply God informing Noah of what is about to occur, the purpose of the ark, and Noah's purpose after the judgment. So it is, God establishes the covenant with Noah. This is the first time the word covenant is used in the scriptures, a very important term that will be used throughout the rest of the scriptures. The concept of covenant can be viewed as one where one party is making the promise to uphold their end of the bargain, or it could be understood as a declaration between two parties upholding both of their ends. Ultimately, it seems the focus is on God's act as it is his covenant with Noah. Part of the covenant has already been established in that Noah will be commanded to build the ark for his and his family's survival. The fact that his family is also entering the ark does not necessarily mean that they are saved because of Noah, but instead they may be viewed as righteous themselves, as we've discussed before. Verses 19 through 20 now deal with the ark issue. If it is just for Noah and his family, why so big? The answer is that the ark will not only be used for sparing humanity, but also every living thing of all flesh. The ark is meant to be a place where they will survive the judgment. Thus, despite the great devastation which will occur, the ark represents salvation from that judgment for all living things. Finally, Noah is commanded to also bring food onto the ark, as logically this would provide sustenance as the flood waters began to rise. Now we come to verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The final verse of this chapter reflects on Noah's reaction. And that is obedience. Despite the coming storm, literally, Noah does not hesitate. Instead, he obeys God's commands. Thus, in Noah, we receive a reflection of an individual who is faithful to God above all. He did not stray from the course, but instead sought complete obedience to God God in what God had called him to do. And then it ends with that. So, The main point of these verses are to do four things. The first is to describe again the state of the world via the fall of mankind. The second is to show God's response to this state. That is, what he's going to do about it. The third is to show the promise given to Noah. And finally, to show Noah's response to God. In this, we find a prelude of the information which you're going to be receiving forthcoming in the following chapters. For now, though, the outline is set for what is... And what will be. Alrighty. Application points from this <laughs> from this text. Within this text, we see elements of two important realities for the Christian life. The first is righteousness, and the second is faith. For the first, we find it in God, and the second, we find it in Noah. 
So it is in this beginning story of what is to come to the evil of the world, we find a great deal about ourselves. How is that so? Well, when we consider righteousness, we naturally must consider unrighteousness. That which is righteous is against that which is unrighteous. In the time of Noah, the human race had made quite the mess of things, hadn't they? They had brought so much darkness over the earth that God decided enough was enough. God had decreed for his righteousness to be revealed against humanity. Now this is something which might strike us in our modern world as odd. Very rarely do we consider the reality that God's righteousness is something which is revealed against humanity. But why should we be surprised by this? Why should it surprise us that God, being righteous, will not suffer the unrighteous to live forever? None would like this to be the case, for it would mean our righteous God would be completely... Um, no, I jumped ahead. <laughs> I did that to you, didn't I? Um, no, none would like this to be the case. None would like us for God to not judge us in the end. Why would we not want God to judge uh, the unrighteous? Well, that would mean that our righteous God was really unrighteous if he didn't do anything about it. If he just let the unrighteous persist over and over and over again in their evil, then he wouldn't be righteous at all. It would be no different for a judge to allow the murderer to go free, despite all the evidence being against the murderer. Not only this, but it would also be as though the murdering act was considered righteous. Can you imagine a world in which murder was good? That is the problem with humanity and God in Genesis, and the problem we ourselves face with God. Our God is completely and totally righteous. And that righteousness is not defined by what we consider righteous, but by God's own righteous character alone. So when we break his law, and we pervert his justice, and we seek self rather than him, then we find ourselves in the midst of a struggle against our own creator. For he created us not as individuals to wander aimlessly without direction and with only our own selves to guide us in these things of life. But he shows us and even gives us himself as the example for our lives. He is the righteous one. And we see righteousness when we gaze upon him. In these verses then we continue to see that dichotomy. We continue to see the difference between what is good, what is moral, what is just, against that which is evil, immoral, unjust. The difference lies in who God is and who we are without Him. Without Him, we have no set foundation, no real stronghold to which we can aspire, and no right and wrong, good and evil. Yet with God... We do have such a foundation because he is good, he is just, he is moral, and by him all these things are seen, are understood, and can even be attained by us. Now this leads us to Noah and the second half of the spectrum. While it is true that the world was full of evil individuals, people who had no desire, passion, or even wanting to follow after God, there was an individual who kind of fit the bill, and that was Noah. As God dictates to Noah what he is going to do, he also informs Noah of what must be done. 
Now the question we should all be asking ourselves is, does Noah's own righteousness save him? Is Noah in and of himself the reason for his own salvation? Some would argue yes. Yet I am not convinced that this is what we are seeing in the story. If you notice, while it may be true that Noah is more righteous than his generation, he is also seen to have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we remember from last week, favor, that means grace. While it is true then that Noah has found favor in God's sight because he sought after God and walked with God, it does not lead to his salvation per se. For consider it, even if Noah is righteous, without God giving him the command to build the ark, and without God intervening in Noah's life, Noah would have drowned, just as any other person. But as it is, God gives Noah grace and a command. This leads to the salvation aspect. God gives grace which Noah, gives Noah the command to which Noah must be obedient to. As it is, this requires something more than righteousness. This requires faith. It requires faith that God is going to send a flood. It requires faith that the dimensions of the ark are appropriate. It requires faith that if Noah does remain obedient, it will lead to salvation from the judgment to come. All of the things which Noah does is based not on his own personal righteousness, but faith in God. In Noah, then, we find an individual who is much like us. Like Noah, we live in a world where the generation is evil. Like Noah, we live in a world in which we are in need of salvation from judgment. And like Noah, our own righteousness is not enough to save us. It reminds us that Noah is whispering the same instructions to us as Enoch. He is whispering from generation to generation, Have faith, have faith. Faith will lead you to salvation. Only by faith will you have life instead of death. This is what we need to ask of ourselves in this time. Why did Noah have faith? He was living in a wicked generation in which darkness permeated the society, much again like we do, if not worse than even ours. So the question is, what caused Noah to have faith in this God? Well, the answer seems to rest on this reality. He knew God. By walking with God, Noah knew who this God was and knew the righteousness of this God, not only the righteousness, but the goodness. Because of this, Noah could have faith that the promises of God were sure. Because he had experienced God in this life, his life. The same is true for us in our own troubling times. In our times, there are many things which gives us sleepless nights, aren't there? Maybe it is finances. Maybe it's a fight we have with our friend, our spouse, or a family member. Maybe we are worried about the future. What's it going to look like? Is it going to snow tomorrow? Maybe we worry about a doctor's appointment and the test results of that doctor's appointment. Maybe we think that our own burdens greater than even Noah's. Yet try to trade places. Trade places with the individual who was told that all life was going to be blotted out from the earth. Trade places with the individual who was told the only way you're going to survive is by obedience. Trade places with the individual who spent the next 100 years living obediently to God, doing exactly as God had commanded. 
Trade places with the individual who was told by God in advance, yes, but who still needed the faith in God that God was going to do all that he said he would. Thus, no one needed as much faith, even knowing what was in store, as we need today in our own circumstances. Noah is someone which we could learn a great deal from in our own time. He is an individual who reminds us every time we hear his story that God is a good God, that he is a righteous God, and a God who makes promises, and that every promise God makes, he keeps. The promise for the faithful, what is it? That he would be with them, that they would not experience an eternal death, that they would be blessed, not necessarily with worldly possessions or peace of mind, but in the knowledge and presence of the very God who created them and brought them into existence has made the promise after promise to them and every promise is and will be fulfilled. What should our response be? Our response should be the same as Noah. For God has given us instructions for faithfulness, to be faithful in times of drought, to be faithful in the times of the flood, to be faithful and our obedience to follow after God, and to imitate this Noah, who did all the Lord commanded of him in all seasons. To dedicate ourselves to God every morning, afternoon, evening, and night, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what the world throws at us, regardless of what the world around us looks like at any given time. And it should be of no surprise to us to learn that this is not easy. Because there is so much that would pull our affections away from the one who loves us so dearly. There is so much that would tell us it's not worth it keep going on. So much would tell us the promises of God are a lie. What could keep us from falling into this trap? Not our righteousness. Not the, we've done this, this, and this, and therefore we deserve this. No. What will save us from the trap is faith itself, specifically faith in our God. If we learn nothing of the next few chapters, let us learn this. Faith in God is where righteousness, where life, where peace, where true security, where love itself dwells. Faith in the God who is there. Faith in the God who has revealed himself. The God who has promised. The God who who has delivered. For if we have faith, it will lead to all these things and more. It will lead to obedience, to trust, to righteousness, to peace, to life, to love. From this text, then, let us learn to be more like Noah. The storm is not even here yet, and still we find Noah acting in obedience to God, because he has faith in the God who has revealed himself, faith that God will do exactly as he says he will and faith that the God who has promised will deliver. Have faith, knowing that the one in whom we place our faith will pull us through. And that's the thing about the gospel. Out of all the promises in the scriptures, the one that seems to be the most important is the gospel. Out of all the promises that God has delivered in the scriptures, from floods, destruction, salvation, from destruction, it's the gospel which is probably the most important. And if God can bring about this, 
then he can bring about every other promise he's promised. Every single one. And so when we consider the gospel of Christ, and we consider our origins, we consider the state of humanity, we consider the reality that we are created in the image of God, that we have free choice, and that leads to us being able to choose to be moral or immoral. It us, makes us be able to be righteous or unrighteous, that we have the ability to decide what we're going to do, how we're going to live. Are we going to follow God, or are we going to follow ourselves in our hearts? Now the problem is, the fall, and that's something that we've been dealing with repeatedly since Genesis 3. Because at the fall, all of humanity decided, "Mm, we're going to go and we're going to choose for ourselves what's good. We're going to choose for ourselves what's right. We're going to choose for ourselves how to live. And we've seen the repercussions of it in every single chapter in Genesis. From Cain and the generations that led to Lamech, that evil, evil man, to the next Adam genealogy through Seth, in which every individual on the list died except for Enoch, all the way to chapter 6, where we see the state of the whole world because of humanity. It's in sin, it's in darkness, it's in pain, violence, and deserves righteousness. And so it is, we're part of that generation too. Each one of us. We're part of the generation that says in our hearts, we don't need God. We don't need him. We can live our own lives how we want and it's okay. Well, what's going to redeem us? How are we going to find redemption? We don't have a flood coming, so to speak. That happened once before. It won't happen again according to the scriptures. We'll get there. Two chapters. Well, redemption for our sins, redemption, the ark that comes for us, is made by God's own hands, and it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we find redemption. Through Jesus, we become Noahs of our generation because we have been redeemed from the flood that's going to happen, from the judgment which we deserve, from the judgment which technically even Noah deserved, but found only by grace to be saved. We are the same. We are in need of God's grace. And when we see that we are in such a state, when we recognize that we are in such a dark place in our hearts, and our minds, that's when we realize the grace of God is a very blessed thing. And it reminds us that the redemption found in Jesus is a very wonderful thing. Because through the redemption in Jesus, we find a complete redemption. So that we can live in righteousness. We can live in love with our God. We can live at peace with our God where that struggle is now against the world and not against God. Where the struggle is not against who God is, but against who we are. And recognizing that we are in need of this salvation and that we can continue to strive for it because of what Jesus has done. And even though we struggle with it, and even though we make mistakes, we know that in the end, it's by grace we're saved. And God will pull us even in the times of our struggles. And where's it going to lead? It's going to lead to glory. It's going to lead to a place without violence, without sin, without unrighteousness. It leads us to the kingdom of God himself, which we inherit through Jesus. 
Yeah, here we don't really inherit that much sometimes, it feels like. When we look at our debts and we look at all the things that surround us, sin, generational sins, pains, aches. But in that, we get something where all that's gone and all we can see is the glory of God and we're going to be immersed in it so deeply, so wonderfully. All of that won't even matter. We're getting there. It's coming. How do I know? God promised it. And his promises are sure. And so that's what we learned today from Noah. If there's anyone we can trust with a promise, it's God. He will deliver. And for this, we can give him the praise forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, as we consider the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and as we consider that same theme from generation to generation, we give you praise. We give you praise because you have done what for us is impossible. We give you praise because through your son, Jesus Christ, you have provided a way of salvation in which we simply need to walk onto it by your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to guide us by your grace, that we would recognize it's not about us, it's about you and what you have done, and that in the end, you save us. You save us by your grace, and that it is your righteousness which we earn, not ours. And, Lord, we ask that you would continue to guide each and every one of us, that we would be Noahs of our generation, that we would be obedient to your will, and that you would give us the strength to overcome all the wiles of the devil, all the wiles of darkness that is around us. And that through faith, the faith which is given to us by grace, we would continue forward, not for ourselves, but because you are worthy. It's in your precious and holy Son's name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.